Pastor Paul Boyer and the Congregation of Victory Church welcome you to this lesson from the Word of God. It is our heartfelt desire to see you grow closer to the Lord and to help you become all that He has created you to be. Our prayer is that through this ministry you would come to know Him in a greater way and that these teachings from the Scriptures will equip and motivate you to fulfill His plan in your life. Now, let's join Pastor Paul as we study the Word together. coming out this morning. I'm really glad to see everybody in the house of the Lord today. It's such a beautiful day outside. You know, some people might be playing hooky. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to be here this week. Well, I'm always excited to be here. I'm excited to be here every week. But I'm especially excited to be here this week because of all the years I've been an associate pastor, I've never gotten a chance to do a series. I'm so excited. I get to do it as a series. I get to do three sermons in a row, all about the same thing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm excited. Because usually it's just kind of, hey, can you preach for me tomorrow? No, it's, it's not usually that quick. But uh, usually I have more warning than that. But, uh, and uh, it's just God working. You know, Pastor John talked last week about timing and how God is in control of all the things when he was talking about the adventures that they had just in North Carolina. Well, now they're back in North Carolina. And they're having a different type of adventure, which we need to pray for. We need to pray for the family and pray for Pastor John's dad as he's having some medical issues and he's in the hospital. Um, but God knew this. God worked this. God arranged this that he had me in place to preach this week before that ever occurred. So I just thank God for the opportunity to come this morning and to preach for you and to take that burden off of John because he's got enough to worry about right now. So, you know, I know he misses being here, and he loves to be in this pulpit. It's kind of like dynamite to get him out of it, so we get a chance once in a while. Not that he's selfish with it or anything, but he does, he does share, but kind of grudgingly. Anyway, so thank you for being here this morning. So I'm thinking about what to, what to preach on. I, I do this every time I get asked to preach. I go, okay, and I go kind of in my prayer closet, and, and I try to, to discern how the Lord is leading me and what I should talk about. Usually, my sermons are very, have you noticed, are very topical because I don't have the opportunity to preach through a book uh, of the Bible or anything like that, in anything in really in series. So I, I pick a, you know, there's a topic that I'm led to, and I try to expand a little bit on that, and I pray that, you know, the Holy Spirit is leading me there, and it's what God would have me say and what God wants you to hear. So I'm thinking about that, and I just get... I just get the impression of where I'm being led is we preach, you know, every Sunday from this pulpit is some very God-led, spirit-led preaching that comes forth. And and I know that Pastor John and, and Brad and I are taking this very seriously. And we're thinking, giving a lot of thought and prayer about what we bring to you, God's people. I think sometimes, though, we need to just get back to the basics. I think we need to back up a little bit and remember why we're doing this and what this is all about. Because we can go down, we can preach about, uh, we can preach about stewardship and we can preach about Christian living and we can preach about you know, all of these things. And that's exactly what God wants us to say. I'm convinced of that. But it's really easy for us to kind of drift away from the fundamentals of the faith. So I was sharing this morning what my, my sermon topic is and this series is Christian Fundamentals. And, of course, Jared ran off with that, and he says, We're, I'm going to preach about Christian fundamentalism, which means from now on all the women have to wear skirts, you can't wear makeup, and it's King James only. No, that's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm going to talk about. That's not the fundamentals of the faith. What I want to talk about is what is Christianity, what does it mean, and why is it important? This is a topic that weighs heavy on my heart. Maybe I kind of get the feeling that maybe one of my spiritual gifts is more is evangelism. Because this is a topic that comes up for me often. Yeah, yeah, all that's, all that's nice. All of the, the deep Christian doctrine and, and free will Baptist doctrine classes and all that, that, those are all good. And we should do those. But do we remember why we're doing it? You know, businesses have and, and corporations have, uh, they have something that it's their, their theme. It's their, their mission statement. Does anybody know what our mission statement is? 
Yeah, it's loving God, loving others, and passing the faith to the next generation. That's what Victory Church is about. The Coast Guard's motto is honor, integrity, and devotion to duty. That's what the Coast Guard's about. Everything we do at Victory should support that. It should be in alignment with loving God, loving others, and passing our faith to the next generation. If we start drifting outside of that, we're, we're walking away from what this church has professed to be. So what these mission statements are, are kind of like when I go bowling. It's the little bumpers on the side that keep the ball from rolling in the gutter. That's what mission statements are. And that's what the fundamentals of the faith are. They remind us what we're doing and why we're doing it. So I come back to that often. About once a year, I dust off some books out of my bookshelf. And I pull out books like this one by Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. It says, The Faith. And it's what Christians believe, why they believe it, and why it matters. It's not deep theology. It's the basic fundamentals of Christian thought. Here's another one. Charles Swindoll, The Owner's Manual for Christians. I encourage everybody to read this book. Then, of course, there's always C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. I didn't bring that up because I've got it in a compilation that's about this big of C.S. Lewis writings. But Mere Christianity is what does it mean in the very distilled essence to be a Christian and why is it important? So that's what this, this series is about, the fundamentals of the faith, what it means to be a Christian and why it's important. So let's pray before I get started. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. Lord, personally, you've blessed me with this chance to bring the word and to preach your gospel, to open up your scripture that you illuminated for me and bring it to these people who so desperately long to hear from you. Lord, we thank you for this congregation that you brought out this morning, these people of like minds and like hearts. They gather together often, not just every Sunday, but often to praise you, to call out your name, to study your word, to do your work here on earth. Lord, you blessed this church with this congregation. We're ever, forever thankful. Lord, we praise you as always for this place that you've given us to meet and the provision that you've made and the many blessings you bring to this church. Lord, I ask that you be with me this morning. You open my mouth to open my mind, open my heart to what you would have me say, that you would open this congregation to be receptive. Lord, be with us as we praise you this morning and we worship you in Jesus' name. All right, let's start, in, let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. Now, I'm not going to read all that. You've all heard the story. We've all read the Genesis story. I'm just going to kind of give you the cliff notes and touch on the highlights. So in verses 1 through 5, it was day 1. God created light, and he separated light from darkness, and he saw that it was good. On day two, God created water, or separated water from water. He created sky, but he didn't comment on goodness. On day three, God created the earth and the sea, and he saw that it was good. He created plants and vegetation and saw that it was good. On day four, God created the sun and the moon and the stars and saw that it was good. On day five, God created the fish and all the sea creatures and birds, and he saw that it was good. And for the first time, God spoke a blessing over the earth. On day six, God created livestock and all the living things and aardvarks to zebras, and he saw that it was good. And then he created man, verse 26 through 31. And he said it was very good. God had created paradise. His creation was finished. His creation was finished with this ultimate creation, the creation of mankind. You think about when God... Stirred. Now, God is eternal. God always has always existed and always will exist. But at a certain point, I don't want to call it point in time because God lives outside of time, but at a certain point, He created. He created the heavens and the earth and everything we know. He created the universe. He created all that we see, all that we understand, and many things that we don't. God created. The pinnacle of his creation was us, was humankind. He created man to be in communion with him, 
The idea behind the creation, you know what God created the heavens and the earth and the anteaters and the aardvarks and all the rest of that? He created all of that so that this universe would exist and this world would exist and the plants and the animals would exist as a home for us. A place for his supreme creation to reside and have communion with him. God created us for communion. He created us to be to walk with him and to talk with him and to share with him. I don't want to say God was lonely. That's a human emotion. But he desired communion with, with, with us, his ultimate creation. Everything we see, this, this pulpit that I'm, this glass that this pulpit was made from, the wood that this, is, this banister was made from, all, everything that we see, everything that we touch, the night sky, the universe, the galaxies, were all created by God for one thing, for one purpose, for one reason, and that was for us, his supreme creation. Everything that we see is a love letter from God to us. He created all of it so that he could have a place for us to commune with him. And in chapter 2, it goes on, it says, So the heavens and earth and everything in them were completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for he rested from his work of creation. And then the God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living thing. Now you notice the difference between the creation story of the animals, the fish and the birds, and the creation story of humankind. God created the animals, and they became living things just at the point of creation. But God took special care with us. He formed the man out of the dust of the ground, And he took one more step that's unique. He didn't do this for anything else. He blew into his nostrils, and God and the man became a living thing. The Greek word for that is neothostis, or actually that's the Latin word for it, neothostis, or theonostis, sorry, theonostis. God breathed. God breathed. He inspired into man. He took mankind that he had formed from a lump of clay and he created them a God-like being. What's different about mankind than the rest of creation is mankind has soul. Mankind is a trinity. It's body, spirit, and soul union. A trinity, just as God's a trinity. Where the animals are not. Animals are body and spirit, but not, but not soul. The difference is the inspiration of God, that God breathed himself. He put his essence into mankind. And he didn't make us God, but he made us more like God than the rest of his creation. Then in verse two, in verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God had provided everything for mankind. He created man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden. He put him in the perfect place. He put him in paradise. All his needs were met. Everything that that he needed was provided for him. All he had to do was live forever in perfect communion with a loving God. Can you imagine that? All he had to do was tend the garden and obey. See, he was given one rule and one rule only. He was asked to tend the garden, but that wasn't an obligation. That was a blessing. But he was given one rule, that he should not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule. All God, all man had to do to live forever in perfect harmony with God was obey. His life was easy. He tended the garden, he walked with God, he named the animals, and he waited. And eventually he welcomed his bride. Verse 18, it says, When when the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, I will make a helper as his complement. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird in the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The Lord gave, or the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found. 
as his compliment. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of the ribs and closed the flesh in, in the, that place. Then the Lord God made a rib he had taken from the man into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The one is called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his mother and father and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, but felt no shame. They lived in paradise. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden where they walked with God. They communed with God. They tended the garden. They named the animals. They walked with God. Everything was good. God had the communion that he was looking for. But God in his wisdom did not want a mail-order bride. The question that is often asked to Christians is, if God is so powerful, why did he allow evil to enter the world? God allowed evil to enter the world. He gave us the opportunity to choose him. Not just out of obligation, but out of love. God wanted his bride, us, to commune with him because we choose to. Because we love God. We long for God. We want to be in the presence of God. He didn't want us to just be a robot that he could command and and would love him unconditionally because we had no choice. There's no alternative. God was all there was. So God allowed evil. God allowed man the opportunity to make a decision. He gave us free will. And he, he sat back. And of course, we're talking about God. So God understood the consequences. But he allowed us to make a choice. And this is where things all go wrong. For now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit in the middle of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Well, we're already off track. That's not what God said. God said not to eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. But he didn't say anything about if you eat the fruit, you will die. That's a little bit of heresy that's crept in. That's where Eve has, has amended God's words. He's taken things out of context And added her own. God didn't say that if you eat this you will die. Eve said that. And Satan says, no. The serpent said, no, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Desirable to obtain wisdom and become more like God. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they, were, and they, saw, they knew that they were naked, so they, they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They made a choice. God had given them free will and given them the ability to choose him. Well, I don't know about you, but when I would go, went into a relationship 41 years ago, almost, with my wife, I wanted her to choose to be with me. She wasn't forced into that marriage. It wasn't that, that you know, I picked, her out of a, I picked her out of a catalog and used my debit card and ordered her in, and now she's my wife whether she likes it or not. She's, she's in this relationship because she chooses to be, and she stays in this relationship because she chooses to. Not, only, not because it's in her best interest financially. She's waiting for that big inheritance that she'll get when I kick off, right? She'll get that uh, 11-year-old truck. She's waiting for that. That's not it. She's with me because she loves me, and she wants to be there. And I pray that all of your relationships are like that. You are with the person you are with because you choose to be and you love them and you're willing to accept them the way they are. You want to have communion with them. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to choose to love him. He could force us to love him. 
But he's, that's not in his nature. It's not his will. His will is that we love him because we choose to. So Adam and Eve had a choice to make. And they made the wrong choice. And sin entered the world. Now let's talk about sin for a minute. We, we hear this all the time. You know, if you've been a Christian more than five minutes, or if you've been in church more than five minutes, you've heard about sin. We know, we know that sin is displeasing to God. It's being disobedient to God. It's being prideful. It's being selfish. There's a whole list of things, and many, many more, that we could call sin. But most of the time as Christians, we think about sin in a spiritual context. We think about sin as out in our relationship with God. How sin damaged our relationship with God. Because God, being just and holy and righteous, cannot be in the presence of sin. He will not look upon sin. So it broke our communion when sin entered the world. Yeah, it separated us from God. So we, God's ultimate creation, the thing that he created all this for, to be in communion with him, are no longer in communion. So we've denied and defied all of creation. We spit in God's face. So yeah, spiritually, that's a, that's a big deal for us. We understand that what sin, what sin has done with our relationship with God. And eventually we're going to face that God, that just God. And he's going to ask us to account for the sin in our lives. And we're not going to have anything to say. Is that the way you've heard sin preached all your life? Yeah? Because it's true. That's what Christianity is about. That's what Christ is about. But there's more than that. There's more that we don't think about. When sin entered the world, everything changed. Not just our relationship with God, but the paradise that God had created started to die. Paradise was lost. The first, one of the first things God did after he confronted Adam and Eve with their sin and explained to them the consequences of their sin as he ushered them out of the garden and posted an angel at the gate to keep them from coming back in. He expelled them from the garden. Everything changed. The universe changed. Until the sin entered the world, there was no death, there was no disease, there was no despair. When sin entered the world, the lions started to eat the lambs instead of lie down with them. The first recorded death was after the fall, when God himself killed animals to create coverings for Adam and Eve to hide their sin. He sacrificed animals to hide their sin. So everything changed. In thermodynamics, there's this phrase called empathy and atrophy. Everything changed. Every system is doomed to failure. Everything will wind down to destruction. Everything degrades over time. It's the laws of physics which came into place when the universe changed as a result of sin. Sin entered the world. Death entered the world. Sin was here on earth. But is sin new? Have you ever thought about that? Who confronted, who, who, who confronted Eve in the garden? Who was it that convinced her to try to take the fruit? It was the, the serpent. Well, who's the serpent? The serpent was the devil. Well, why was the devil on earth in the first place? Wasn't, the devil originally was one of God's creation. He was the golden angel. He was the son of light. Right? The angel of light. He was one of, the, the, of God's premier creations in heaven. Although he is a created being, how is he on earth in the first place? So it must have preceded this. Something happened before Satan tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we find out about that in Ezekiel 28. In Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel is talking to, he's writing a letter And he's writing a letter to the king of Tyre. And we'll talk about that. Ezekiel 28, verse 11, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre, and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. Now, the king of Tyre was a metaphor for, for Satan. He's talking about Satan himself. 
This is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every good and precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You are anointed the guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until, until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to earth and I made a spectacle of you before the kings. And in Job, he's speaking about the uh, Leviathan, or the coiled one, which is another metaphor for Satan. He said, Satan looks down on all that are are haughty. It is the king over all that are proud. So Satan had already fallen. Pride had already existed. Sin already existed. It didn't exist in the world, but it already existed in heaven. Pride had always already caused the fall of Satan by the time Adam and Eve were created. Sin is pride, and pride is sin. If you look close enough at every sin, think about it. Any sin you can imagine, think of it. Look closely. Look at the underlying foundation of it. Think, look at the motivation. If you drill down deep enough in every sin that man is capable of, in the center of it, you will find one thing, one central element. You will find pride. As the core of every sin, every adultery, every lie, every deception, every turning away from God, the core is pride. The core is making yourself more than you are, thinking yourself more highly than you should, putting yourself in place of God. Satan fell because he thought himself equal to God. He wanted God's position. He was jealous of God. He wanted to be in the place of God. He wanted to be equal to the Creator. And that's the problem. Because sin always places us in God's rightful place. Sin always bumps, pushes God aside and places us on His throne. In sin, there are no rules. I'm the supreme authority, I can do what I please. It's pride and sin and death and decay and destruction. You feel bad yet? Okay, it gets worse. Sin's not cheap. And it doesn't come without cost. The pride that filled Satan and the pride that filled Adam and Eve had consequences. There's a debt to pay. And we're still paying it. Because sin didn't die with Adam and Eve. It's a hereditary disease that infects all of us. And his symptoms are plain. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, starting in verse 28, it says, And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They were filled with unrighteousness, evil and greed and wickedness. They were full of envy and murder and quarrels and deceit and malice. They were gossips, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. Inventors of evil, as if we had to invent more. Disobedient to parents. Listening, kids? Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they, they knew full well God's just sentence, that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not, not only do them, they even applaud others who practice them. Does any of that sound familiar? It doesn't take long to find this being lived out. Think about what's in the news right now. Do we see sin in the news? Yeah. Do we sin in our da- see sin in our daily lives? Do we go into our to our uh, factories or our offices or our shops or our schools? Do we see sin being lived out there? And there was a time 
when vagrant open sin, the sin that was obvious to all the world to see, that was performed in front of the world, was shameful. And that's no longer true. These things that once would have been, would have been shameful are now applauded. They're now held up in, in, in the open, and they're taught this is the way we should live. This is the way we should relate to God. These are the kinds of things that we should be able to do. We, need to be, we should be able to carry out our lives any way we please. And no one has the right to tell me I'm wrong. Especially God. And the result of all of this is also plain. The consequence of sin. We look at how our, how our, our society has degraded. We look at how far we have fallen. And then we look at the consequences. We look at divorce rates. We look at teen suicides. We look at teen pregnancies. We look at the opioid ep- epidemic. We look at wars and devastation and genocide. And we see the results of sin. Because sin always carries a short-term benefit that has long-term consequences. And it's always the innocent that pay. So in essence, the penalty for sin is separation from God. God created us to walk in communion with Him, but sin breaks that communion, places this barrier between us. It moves us so far away from God that we can't reach Him again. Because God is righteous God, and God is just, and God won't allow unrighteousness in His presence. So mankind, you and me, are covered in the stink of sin, and God has turned away from us. So what do we do? The world knows the situation we're in. They won't admit it. But the world knows that there is a God. And Brad talked last week or two weeks ago about general revelation and how the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. So that no man is innocent. We all know that there's a God. We may call him different things, but every human, human being, one of the, the fundamentals, fundamental needs of human beings are food, clothing, shelter, and the belief in something higher than themselves. Every society on earth has its own image of what God should be. But they all understand that there is a supreme something, a supreme being. They may not call him Yahweh. They may not call him God. They may not call him Jesus. They may refer to him a different way. But they understand that there is something and how far we have fallen. Every culture since Adam has tried their own way to reapproach God by whatever name they call him. And it didn't work. It always ended up as a demonstration of man's pride instead of a recognition of God's glory. Think about religion. And what is religion? What's the definition? It's man's attempt to reach God. So think about religion. Think about any religion, including Christianity, if it becomes religion. And what have you found? You found an empty shell of man's pride trying to work their way back into God's good graces, trying to sacrifice their way back to God, trying to to turn their back completely on God and try to become their own gods. Every one of them has come back to the pride of man. Every one, including Christianity, if we're not careful. We can be so... Christian and so righteous, and there's there's a comedian. If you get a chance to, to, to look to look at his YouTube videos, and Michael Jr., the Christian comedian, and he talks about being oversaved. It's hilarious, his, his skip. But he talks about being oversaved. We can be so righteous that we're no earthly good. We can be so wrapped up in our church and what our church is doing that we're doing nothing outside of our church. That we're not taking the gospel message outside of the walls of the church that we're serving in. We're so busy serving each other that we forget why we're here and we forget what our mission is. And what is our mission? 
to take the gospel to the entire world and teach them the things that God has revealed to us to share the glory of God and the gospel message with the world, to teach them these things, to make disciples of them. We're to make disciples of the entire world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're here for. Are we doing it? Or are we getting so wrapped up in what we're doing in our own church, inside our own building, that nothing is happening outside of these walls? Now, I'm not saying that's true for Victory Church. But it's a danger that churches fall into. Other churches fall into the trap of legalism. They think, well, if we just try harder, if we just take the, the, what, we have, what we have gleaned out of Scripture, we can take some things out of context, and we can make a set of rules. If we follow these set of rules, then God will surely smile on us, and we'll be into heaven. We'll get back in communion with God because of all the great things we have done. Is that what gets us into heaven? Is that what brings us back into communion with God? Is that what pays for this sin? The wonderful things that I have done? I don't think so. Because what happens when, when we fall into the trap of legalism? What happens when the rules become more important than the grace? The rules become our idols. They become the things we worship instead of the God that we're called to worship. Legalism is idolatry in any way you look at it. And idolatry is sin. Because we're placing ourselves before God. It's a demonstration of our pride. And pride is sin. It's idolatry. Idolatry in all its forms always leads back to man, not to God. So even the Jews, God's chosen people, they struggled with this. For thousands of years, the people struggled under the weight of the law. Moses brought down from the mountain Ten Commandments that God had given to the people. And what were the people doing? While Moses was on the mountain, the people were rebelling against God. So they destroyed the tablets. And that's a long story. I'd love to, I'd love to preach on that. But we don't have time. Went back to the mountain and got Ten Commandments again. Ten Commandments. God had ten rules. Or originally he had one rule in Genesis. Now he's got ten. And by the time of Christ, had over a thousand. See, God gave the laws a path for righteousness. He was using the law as an example of what it took to be holy. And if you were to keep the law perfectly, then you would be righteous and holy enough to approach God. The problem is that mankind took the law and corrupted it and read into it. And overextended it just as Eve did. Where God says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree. Eve said, well, God said if I eat from the fruit of the tree, I will die. The Jews took the Ten Commandments and they inserted their own rules. They decided that, well, not only was it a sin to, to lie or to kill or to commit adultery, Or give false testimony. Or dishonor your mother and your father. Not only are those sins, but it's also sins to work on, on, on the Sabbath day. That's also a sin. Well, how do we define what work is? Well, I think work is anything... If, well, yeah, if you take more than a thousand steps, then you're working. So therefore, it's a sin to take more than a thousand steps. In Israel today, there are elevators that, that automatically stop on the various floors without having to push a button because pushing a button is work. And, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, the elevators just stop at every floor. So you don't have to push the button to get off the elevator to get to the floor you want because pushing a button is work. And if you're working on the Sabbath, that's sin. So therefore, to approach God, you've got to be able to restrain from pushing the button. It's not what God said at all. 
God said to keep the Sabbath holy. And, and remember the manna from heaven? They were to collect only enough manna every day for their needs for that day. But the day before the Sabbath, they were to pick up twice as much. And it would last them through the Sabbath because they shouldn't, be, they shouldn't collect on the Sabbath. So God gave them a clue about what keeping the Sabbath holy was, but he didn't take it to the point of pushing a button on an elevator. Man did that. So God gave them the law, gave them the law as a path to righteousness, and they turned it into a hollow shell of God's intent. It became a burden, a millstone around their necks that led to their destruction. It became a works-based salvation, doomed to fail because of the sinful pride of men. See, sin is in the world, and there's nothing we can do about it. It's everywhere. You can see the consequences played out every day, and no matter how hard we try, we are stuck in a pattern of self-destructive behavior that eternally separates us from God. Speaking for myself, I can never be good enough. I can try. I can try. I really do try to do what I know God wants me to do and obey His commandments. But there's always something that comes up and I say, Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have looked at that woman that way. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have told that little white lie to my boss about where I was when I left early. I shouldn't. Right? Because the sin always wells back up. No matter how hard I try not to, I'm still a sinner and I'm still lost in sin and there's nothing I can do to stop it. I can never be good enough. I can never work hard enough. Sin is always there. And it's always part of who I am. So you think about this long enough. I come to the conclusion that I have no hope. I can never approach God. I can never get back in God's good graces. I can never atone for the sin in my life. There's nothing I can do. I've got no future. I've got no peace. I can have the whole world and forfeit my soul. I desperately need to get back back to God, but I'm completely incapable of doing it. I'm convicted by my heart. I'm convicted to the depths of my soul that I'm a sinner. I'm doomed without a Savior. There's nothing I can do on my own. So there's two choices, there's two ways you can react to that conviction. You can do something about it, and we'll talk about that next week. Or you can turn your back on it. You can deny that it even exists. See, the world doesn't see the problem. The world knows that, that, that sin exists. They see the evidence of it every day. No one can deny it. No one can deny that the world is not a perfect place. It's not paradise. So they rationalize it. They say, you know, maybe life would be grand if we all just got along. Maybe there would, maybe there would be no more wars if I could just buy the world a Coke. Man's effort to approach God. Maybe we could solve all the world's social problems with a bigger government and more welfare programs. Maybe we could relieve poverty by redistributing the wealth, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. We can solve our own problems. We can build a tower to heaven and be like God's ourselves. And it doesn't work. It will always fail. Because there is no other answer but God. I have to be saved from myself, but I have no hope. A just God can't even look at me. And you too. So how does that make you feel? This is a real downer sermon, isn't it? You came in here to be uplifted today, you're leaving disappointed. What God led me to tell you today was that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you're lost without hope, except for the hope that God brings. We're talking about the basics of the faith, 
essence of Christianity doesn't get any more essential than that. Because what does it take to become Christian? First, you have to be convicted of your sin. You have to realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that's the part the world refuses. That's the part the world counts as foolishness, that they actually are sinners in need of a Savior. We can do this ourselves. We don't need your Christ. We don't need your Messiah. Fundamentals of the faith. Yes, you do. And you must, until you realize that you're lost in your sin and there's no way back to God. You can't do it on your own. The first thing you must do is realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. If the band, if the band wants to come up, I'm just about done. You must realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the essence. That's the fundamentals of Christianity. Without that understanding, there's nothing. Without coming to the recollection that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, you are are eternally distant from God. You will not be able to enter into God's presence. Heaven is denied to you, and God will send His creation to hell. There are some Christians that deny that. But the, the Bible is clear, and the Bible is plain. Without the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ, you're doomed. You've got no hope. You've got no future. Eternity is dark for you and me and everyone else because of that sin, because of the sin that's pervasive in the world. We've got to get our hearts and our minds and our souls wrapped around the truth that we are sinners fallen from grace and we have no hope of approaching God without a Savior. And that's not what people want to hear. And I'm sure that's not what you wanted to hear. That's the bad news. Next week is the good news. So we should leave next week excited. I'm sorry to bring you down this week. I don't hope it doesn't ruin your day. Next week we'll talk about the answer to all these questions. We'll talk about what it takes to get back into communion with God. We'll talk about God and His grace and His wisdom and how He has a solution for the problem of sin. So tune in next week for the good news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for giving us the chance to do this, the opportunity to do this, giving us the will to do this. Lord, we know that this is hard to hear. Too many preachers, I fear, are preaching health, wealth, and prosperity that never touch on the reality of sin and the reality of of Satan's hell. Lord, we understand from the revelation of your scripture that this is true. And that without a Savior, without redemption, without grace, there is no hope. There is no future. Lord, I ask that you be with all of us, that you convict us of this truth, that you bring about a realization that without you we are nothing and we've got no hope. Christianity is a, is a religion, if you will. It's a worldview. There's joy. based on love and joy and repentance. Before we can find that joy, we can find that grace, we have to come to terms with the sin in our lives. Lord, I ask for your conviction on all of us, that you convictive of sin, that you bring it forward in our minds and in our hearts, that you show us where we are going wrong, that you give us the opportunity to repent, which means turn around and Take a new direction. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here today that these words are new, that they had no understanding of sin and the sin in their lives, and they're feeling the conviction that you're bringing on from the Holy Spirit working in their lives to make this sin real to them. 
Lord, I ask if there's anyone here today that's hearing this message, that they repent of that, that they accept you as the Savior, that they take the time now to do this, that they, they understand that without you, without hope, and without grace, there is nothing. So, Lord, I ask that if you're moving in the heart of anyone today to make a decision for you, that today would be the day that they do that. That you would use this time, use this, these words to convict a heart. Lord, I ask that you be with all of us, that we take this conviction out into the world and show the light that you've called us to be, that you give us the grace to minister to those that are lost, that you build us up and make us the ambassadors that you've called us to be. There's a, Lord, there's a dying world out there desperately in need of redemption. We are those instruments. Give us the peace and the glory to do such to go out, spread your word, and bring people closer to you. Lord, I pray that you be with this church and this congregation and this this body of believers who are called together by love to worship you. We ask all these in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for this lesson from the Word of God. We know that the truth you have just heard will change your life if you believe it and intentionally apply it. If you need someone to pray with, or maybe you just want someone to talk to, please call us at 618-622-9360, or you can email us at victoryfwb at gmail.com. If you're interested in obtaining more teaching materials, or if you'd like to partner with us in this ministry, please contact us. You can email, call, or send a request to 223 Scott Troy Road, O'Fallon, Illinois, 62269. And again, we thank you and are glad you could join us.